Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And this week, like everyone else, we are concerned mainly with the coronavirus COVID-19 um, pandemic that's going on currently. Yeah, I mean, um, just like the rest of the world, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it is uncharted times. Yeah, and it is, you know, probably occupying a lot of people's minds. So we're going to shine a scientific light on things and hopefully uh, give you some information you didn't necessarily know, give you some advice on how to look after yourself and others around you. Um, I'm going to be talking briefly about uh, the the way viruses change and mutate and where did where did, where did a new version of a virus come from and how does that even come about um so i'll talk about how viruses work really and maybe that will you know help put some people's mind at ease a little bit about why is washing your hands you know mm. a worthwhile thing to be spending 20 seconds every time doing yeah the origin story yeah, yeah. um claire what are you going to be talking there's a lot of people who are going to be working from home soon, working remotely and um, feeling potentially isolated or disconnected. And so I'm going to be referencing some research around well-being and mental health from Flinders University um, that talks about um, the STREAM method and how we can use this um, this acronym to, um, to help us feel more connected and um, keep us, I guess, like feeling healthy and happy in our mental well-being. So don't don't cross the streams, go with the stream. Go with the stream. Yeah. Go with the stream. Uh, and Chris is going to be talking with epidemiologist Freya Shearer about how coronavirus gets transmitted from person to person and, and some strategies to, uh, to prevent that from happening and, and what they mean for... Um, you know, the spread of uh, infectious diseases, which is, you know, pretty much what we're all concerned with right now. So uh, stay tuned for all of that coming up later in the show. Now, there's been a lot of talk about viruses lately. Have you noticed, Claire? Yeah, well, it's. I mean, it's just occupying. Um, well, I mean, about a hundred percent of my thoughts all day, every day. But we'll we'll get to that and how we, how you can deal with that later. But anyway, yeah. So you know, obviously, this is because a novel virus has appeared, and novel just means new. In case people didn't know, it's not because it's like a novelty. It's not like a funny virus. It just means it's a new virus, uh, COVID nineteen, which is part of the coronavirus group. Um, which might sound like a multinational corporation, but um, well, Corona means crown in that is, Spanish. That right? is correct. Well, and in Latin as well. Oh, that's well, where it probably, came from. Yeah. Um, and now, coronaviruses are very common in birds and mammals and humans, and are often the cause of mild illnesses. So many presentations of the common cold are actually coronaviruses. Mm. Um, and one of the first classifications of coronavirus were from human patients with cold symptoms in the 1950s. So this is when they first found this virus or this, this class of viruses. And how long had they been classifying viruses? Well, it was basically when they started having microscopes powerful enough to look at them directly because they're tiny, tiny little things, viruses. Um, so around the same time as these human patients uh, 
they isolated a coronatype virus from uh, an infectious bronchitis in chickens. So chickens had a different coronavirus, giving them a bronchial infection, um, which is, you know, infection of the lungs. So it's not that different to some cold symptoms, I guess. Um, and when they looked at it under an electron microscope, it had the appearance of a crown or a halo around the actual virus particles. And that's where it gets its name, coronavirus. Mm. It looks like it's got a halo or a crown around the actual virus particle itself. So coronaviruses have different effects depending on what species they infect. So if they infect cattle and pigs, they often cause diarrhea. Right. Which is quite different to the effects we get. Not that you'd know that from the toilet paper uh, issue that's happening at the moment. Um, um, They don't cause cold and flu symptoms. No. Uh, And in chickens, they cause respiratory problems such as bronchitis, which is how they found this in the chickens. In humans, they cause some cases of the common cold, as I said, but colds in humans are also caused by rhinoviruses, which basically just means a virus of the nose. Mm -hmm. It's not a virus of a rhinoceros. The most recent coronavirus in the news is another that has moved from animals to humans and has caused health problems after being found to be contagious between humans. Um, Earlier coronaviruses that have done the same thing, uh, one of them was known as SARS, which is an acronym for Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And there's another one called MERS, which stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. So... SARS was basically contained in 2003. It broke out in 2003. They got it under control in 2003. doesn't cause any problems currently. MERS uh, has a limited spread, but it is an ongoing health problem in the areas it's affecting. And MERS is associated with camels. It came from camels. Mm. So when people talk about avian flu or bird flu or swine flu, they're mostly talking about coronaviruses. Um And these are the creatures most likely to transmit new coronaviruses to humans. Uh, In the case of COVID-19, which is the current viral outbreak, the virus most likely came from probably from bats or potentially from pangolins. Pangolins. Yeah. Yeah. So they're a a very cute little animal who... They're one of my favourite animals. Yeah. They're a scaly anteater. Hmm. They're actually still investigating the similarities between the COVID-19 and, and the viruses that those animals have. Yeah. And to do that, they really need to look at the, um, the RNA of the virus. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Um, the issue with them coming from those is most people don't really have contact with bats and with pangolins, often have contact with birds and chickens and pigs and cattle and all these other things that also have coronaviruses. So that it came from a very unusual vector is an interesting um, idea. But the question is, how does a new version of a virus appear in the first place? Where does it come from? Other than from the animal, but why does it jump from an animal to a person? So unlike humans and animals, viruses are not really living things. We don't classify them technically as living things because they rely completely for their survival on having living cells to make copies of their genes and the other mechanisms they use to infect new cells. Right, so they need to invade a living cell to yeah. be able to reproduce and exist. Yeah, and they have to they basically parasitize another cell. Um, so when a virus com- comes in contact 
with a susceptible cell, it gains entry to the cell and injects its own genetic material into the cell. In the case of coronaviruses, like you said, it's RNA, not DNA. So our cells have DNA as the uh, nucleus of the cell. Viruses inject RNA, which is kind of like a messenger kind of genetic uh, material. So this genetic material from the virus hijacks the machinery of the host cell and gets it to build copies of the virus. Which, so sneaky. Yeah, basically shuts down all the things that cell is supposed to be doing and it just makes copies of the virus just instead. Like now at this point, when the cell is making copies of the viral RNA, in that copying process, mutations occur. Mistakes, right. errors occur in the, in the RNA, just like they do occasionally in normal living cells. So when those mutations arise in the RNA, if they're beneficial to the virus, <laughs> the new virus particle becomes more infectious than it was potentially and possibly can infect new hosts it couldn't before. The, the thing to remember about viruses though, if, if they become too good at infecting host cells, they can kill the host organism completely and they don't want to do that. It's not in their best interest, not that they really have interests, but it is not something that a successful virus does. A successful virus may make its host sick in some way, but if it kills off the host, then there's no more virus. So it's not, uh, it's not beneficial to the virus. So in a way, they're kind of self-limiting in that way. If they get too good at uh, parasitizing other cells, they stop finding cells to parasitize because the host doesn't last that long. But um, now coronavirus particles, when they're between hosts, have a lipid-based outer capsule. Break that down for us. So when they're, when they're inside the cells, they sort of break apart and the RNA makes copies of the virus. Mm -hmm. When they're outside of a cell, once they've made a copy, the outside of the... So RNA. When, so when they might be just what, like, hanging out on a countertop? Or yeah. So like say someone, say someone coughed up a virus yeah. onto the surface of a of a bench or something yeah. like that, or a table. Yeah. Then that virus is surrounded by uh, a lipid-based shell, so basically. Fat. Yeah. Fatty, a fatty shell. Yeah. So and that fatty coating protects the RNA from breaking down. Right. If RNA is exposed to oxygen, it starts mm. to break down almost immediately. And if it breaks down a little bit, it no longer contains the code to make new viruses. So one of the great things is that fat is breaking, broken down by soap and detergent, some detergents. So if you you know wash your hands often with soap, you'll break the outside of that lipid Take that. shell and that's the end of the virus. Right. Yeah. So very useful to know. That's why washing hands is such an effective way of stopping viral transmission. So even though viruses um, do, and as we've seen, they're doing a lot of damage in our communities in the world right now, um, it, it is easier to kill them um, than, you know, something like a bacteria. Well, that's the thing is we need very complex medicines and things like that to kill bacteria. Uh, and bacterial colonies can multiply very quickly. But if we stop the viruses getting into the hosts, then there's no more viruses once they're outside of, you know, an infected person. If everyone gets better and there's no virus infection, the virus is gone pretty much. So at the moment, all we can do is wash our hands 
Uh, don't touch our face because viruses get into our bodies through our nose and our mouth and our eyes and our ears. Um, and if you need to cough or sneeze, do it into the crook of your elbow and not out into the world and not onto your hands because you might actually rub it off on something else. Uh, but yeah, that's simple advice and people might be getting sick of hearing it, but it is the best uh, thing we've got to do at the moment. to Lost in Science. My name's Chris and today we're going to try to answer some big questions that we all have about the novel coronavirus and the disease COVID-19. Now we are recording this interview ahead of time and the situation is rapidly changing but hopefully we'll still be able to answer some of the big questions that are out there. To help us out with this we have on the line mathematical epidemiologist Freya Shearer from the University of Melbourne. Freya thanks for joining us. Hi Chris, thanks very much for having me. Now, my first question is one that I don't expect to change much uh, in weeks to come. Could you tell us what exactly is a mathematical epidemiologist? Okay, so we use a combination of mathematics and statistics to understand how disease spreads through populations. Okay, and I mentioned the new coronavirus has kept you fairly busy these past couple of months. Yes, it has. We've been thinking about this carefully. Yeah, and the University of Melbourne has been closely involved as well. I believe the virus was first grown in a lab at the University of Melbourne. Is that right? Yes, that's true. That was um, at the Doherty Institute, and I was, I'm was i not involved at all in that uh, type of work, but some colleagues there were involved in it. Did you get to see it at all? No, I haven't. I've um, mostly been at my computer. So you try to model these uh, epidemics or pandemic as the case might be with this one. What are the kind of factors that determine how things will turn out? Okay, so there's two uh, key drivers of epidemic impact that uh, we look at closely. The first one is transmissibility or how quickly something spreads from person to person. It's also called the basic reproduction number R0 which I'm sure people would have seen quoted and used in the media recently. So that's the number of infections or cases arising from any case. So so that could be for something like measles, that's really high, around 20. Um, And then for influenza and coronaviruses, it's often between one and three. And that's in a fully susceptible population, so where everyone um, is susceptible to infection. And it is also before there's any control measures, assuming that there's no public health measures that might impact that number. And I should also point out that it's an average. So um, any one individual could infect more than that number and other individuals may infect less. Oh, so that's the average number of people that someone may infect. Is that what that is? Yes. Okay. And so do we know what it might be for this current coronavirus? So there's still quite a bit of uncertainty around this number 
and lots of groups around the world have tried to pinpoint it. At the moment we're working within a range of between about 1.5 and 2.5. What are the other factors that affect it? So another really important one is the clinical severity and we can think about that in a number of ways. So the proportion of people who might have symptoms or the proportion of people who seek healthcare because of those symptoms and then right up to the proportion of people who require hospitalisation or have serious illness as a result of infection. And do we know, again, do we know how this compares to like other illnesses that people might have encountered? So, you know, like the normal flu or influenza? Yes. So this is another number that's really hard to pin down, especially early in an outbreak. One of the reasons for that is because case definitions and reporting practices and testing practices change really rapidly over time. So it's really hard to get a handle on those numbers. For, for this particular, at this stage, it's sort of somewhere between, say, seasonal influenza and something like SARS, which was really severe. An important point is that for regular influenza, because um, we see that every year, so seasonal influenza, a lot of people will be immune to infection. And so even if the proportions are similar to seasonal influenza, we can still see absolute numbers of people with serious outcomes being higher because this is a new virus and so we're assuming that most people will be susceptible to infection. There isn't that immunity out there already in the community. Yeah, and often there's a difference in severity across different age groups and we've already seen that there seems to be pretty severe outcomes for elderly people. So there's still a possibility that this could be a serious uh, infection and that's why um, precautions and planning is happening at the moment. And we noticed that there are some differences uh, even between different countries that we're seeing. So like South Korea does seem to have a lot of infections, but a lot lower, say, the mortality rate there in terms of other countries. Yeah, yeah. And, and a part of that is related to what I just described in terms of reporting and case definitions. So there will be um, factors related to different health systems that are linked to the reporting. That will mean we expect those numbers to look quite different across different countries. And there's also just inherent differences in populations. So if a virus affects different age groups differently and different populations have different structures in, in terms of um, the number of people in different age categories and things, then we'll see that there'll be different absolute numbers. And as I said, um, it is difficult to compare those rates that we're seeing from different countries because we, we just know that they're really difficult to estimate robustly at this time. Sure. So I'm sure with all these uncertainties, it's really hard to know how it will turn out. I mean, because one of the big ones that people think about when they think of big pandemics was the 1918 flu, also known as the Spanish flu. It's, is it mm. possible at all to say how this compares to something like that? Yeah, so um, in terms of that upper bound of the range I gave you for the R0, so I said 1.5 to 2.5, yeah. I'd say sort of 2.5 is more like influenza um, in 1918. There's, there are also other really key differences between influenza and coronavirus or this particular coronavirus. And so one of those differences is that influenza epidemics are relatively fast compared to something like SARS and this new coronavirus because there's a really short time from when someone's infected to when they become infectious. 
and also they're not infectious for that long. So the sort of course of infection could be, you know, three to four days. And so with um, SARS and this coronavirus, um, or at least the evidence, emerging evidence for this new coronavirus is that it's much slower. So there's people take longer to incubate the virus and then their infectious period is longer as well. And so this means that we end up with a slightly flatter peak of the epidemic, but it's longer in duration. The other thing that's important to note is that influenza, partly because of those really short time frames, is really hard to control because it's difficult to identify contacts in time before they become infectious. And by having a slightly longer incubation period, this gives us time to follow up with people before they might become infectious. And also influenza has lots of asymptomatic infections and people can become infectious before they have symptoms, which, and the result is that you have lots of people who are infectious and they don't realise, and that makes control efforts challenging. Whereas the early evidence from this coronavirus suggests that most transmission seems to occur from symptomatic individuals, and that means that our case isolation and following up with the contacts is more likely to be effective than for influenza, and that's good news. Okay, so that's part of your work as well, is working out what control measures are effective. Mm -hmm. So are these kind of things that you talked about, are they being done at the moment? Yes, Australia has been focused on um, identifying, detecting cases, and the public health units have been working very hard to um, identify contacts and recommend things like self-isolation and quarantine. Yes, so those measures have been in place for a long time now. And I think the other thing that's really important and is being recommended is that in the general population is um, our hand hygiene, washing our hands and coughing, sneezing, children, things like that, um, staying home when you're unwell, will have the ability to um, reduce the overall number of infections and in people with severe outcomes in this case. Oh, that, is, that is comforting. Um, should I be paranoid about touching my face? Because a lot of people seem to be concerned about that. Yes, I think uh, well, maybe paranoid's not um, the right word, but uh, certainly, yeah. There's if you're touching your face a lot with hands, um, that's meant to increase chance of um, transferring something on your hands to your respiratory tract. Okay, well, I will try to behave myself with that. Um, now, <laughs> I've got one more question. This is something that when I told people I was speaking to you that uh, kind of everyone seemed to want to know, which is, do we know anything more about where this virus came from? Is that something you're able to comment on? So that, that is an interesting question, and I know lots of people are interested in it. Um, I think the best person to ask is a virologist or a geneticist. Um, they can help to answer those questions. And it might be, uh, answering those questions might be important for planning for other or future emerging pandemic threats, but it won't assist in the control of a current outbreak now that we obviously have sustained human-to-human transmission in lots of places. Right. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us today, Freya. Um, and I hope you keep up the good work with helping to control the coronavirus. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. That was mathematical epidemiologist Freya Shearer.
So, Stu, um, the spread of COVID-19 has many health, social, economic effects that are happening now and are going to continue to challenge us into the future. Um, But as a community, uh, this also presents us with mental health challenges. So, especially as workforces are moving to maybe a working remotely model, um, working from home or working at a distance, self-isolating, um, businesses are shutting and community self-isolation, you know, might be happening for a while. Yeah. Um, so I personally started uh, working remotely this week and uh, on my first day I was comfortable and, you know, wore comfy pants. That was all great. Um, <laughs> I got to pat the cat whenever I liked. Um, make yourself a coffee made whenever you got... Make myself a coffee when, I mean, well, I can do You can that. probably do that at yeah, the office too. Yeah, probably do that at yeah. work. But, uh, but then, you know, I started missing my colleagues. I found myself, you know, having a growing level anxiety of anxiety, seeing all this news but not being able to sort of talk to anybody about it, you know? Yeah, and it is one of our outlets is when something worries us, we share it with someone else yeah, and you then, you, you know, you chat about it and you feel yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah. So today I thought um, for my own peace of mind, I'm going to run through some strategies for mental well-being and resilience. And these are interventions that Professor Mike Kyrgios, Director of the Arama Institute of Mental Health, Wellbeing and Neuroscience at Flinders University, has been working to develop. And with every good strategy, there is an acronym. Um, <laughs> what's, what's the acronym? STREAM. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's stream, i.e. Yeah. picture the calm, clear stream and you too will feel better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so S is for social networking. So this is basic. When we are undergoing distancing, quarantining, um, don't cease social networking. Keep in touch with people. Um, give people um, a shout out on social media. Um, drop them an email or better yet, pick up the phone and have a good old fashioned um, phone call. Yeah. Yeah. I've recently discovered using headphones to make phone calls. It's revolutionized my my phone call, um, my capacity to talk to my family. It means you don't have to hold the phone with your other hand. It's so great. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's S. T is for timeout. So if you're working from home uh, and there might be other family or housemates that you're living with, remember to separate from each other if you're stuck together for long periods of time. So you could maybe timetable periods of timeout uh, and just minute, try to minimise the stress of being in each other's space mm-hmm. and faces for too long because, you know, I mean, I love my cat, but um, sometimes it's just time to... <laughs> time to send the cat to time the other to room. Time to send the cat to the other room. She can be real needy. So. <laughs> um, R is for relaxation. Uh, so this can be achieved through mindfulness, yoga. Um, it's been shown that managing anxiety can be helped through a variety of different relaxation strategies, whatever works for you. Um, but if yoga is your thing, then there is an aptly named app called Down Dog, which is offering free downloads in April. So that's that's all good. You Very do, useful. Yeah, you can continue doing your yoga with, um, with also doing self-isolating. E is for exercise and entertainment. Yeah. Um, whichever your preferred one is, or maybe both. You could watch someone else exercise for entertainment. <laughs> so, yeah, burn off some energy, especially if you have a yard with a bit of space or you can throw some great sort of like um, in-room workouts as well. Um, there's some online book clubs that are starting to pop up, a whole world of streaming out there. Um, and then also uh, book uh, – sorry, libraries have audio books and um, and like Kindle books that yeah. you, can, you can download as well. Yeah. Slash borrow. 
Yeah. A is for alternative thinking. Professor Curios explains that uncertainty will lead to heightened tension and stress. So if you're becoming angry, ask yourself why um, and and are the things that you are fearful about likely to eventuate? So what is science telling us about the most likely outcome? Is this reasonable? Are there better ways to um, manage your underlying motivations? Mm-hmm. I.e. Um, not having toilet paper, that 12 pack of toilet paper, it's not going to be the end of the world. And um, M is for being mindful of others. So um, I'm sure some people would call this one mateship instead. I don't know if I'm one of those people, but it did come to mind. Uh, So remember, this is a short term situation and that we can get through it if we work together. So um, resolving crisis and supporting one another, it's not new. It's something we've done before. And um, looking out for people, checking on your neighbours and, of course, keeping those good hygiene practices um, is, you know, that's going to be what gets us through. So, yeah, that's, yeah. So instead of, yeah, panic hoarding toilet paper, um, which only results in people missing out, if you follow the stream um, to keeping chill at a safe distance, um, hopefully we'll all come out of this uh, a much stronger community and for more information about the government's mental health initiatives head to uh, a website called headtohealth.gov.au That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.